0: Hey everybody, welcome back to University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. We have such a great conversation for you today. You know, I'm just so blessed to be able to bring amazing humans like this and share their stories with you guys because isn't that really what it's all about? We're going through challenging times in our lives, and to hear somebody who's gone through things, overcome them, and be able to give you some insight into your life and provide you with some tools that you can use when you're in challenging situations. It's really what it's all about. Right. And we talk about this in the episode about, you know, when it comes to the adversity you face, all what really matters is how do you respond to it? You know, and how, how do you show up? How long do you stay in the shit before you, you know, kind of bounce back in control of your emotions and control, basically in control of the driver's seat of your life. You know, it's so easy, especially nowadays, to react emotionally and to be able to have tools that can kind of give us our power back is really why this show exists. And today, I had an amazing gentleman join us today. His name is, he goes by J.H. Parker, also known as John Henry, and he's an incredible human being. And let me give you a little bit of insight into who he is and what he has done in this incredible journey he's been on. He's a behavioral assessment analysis, an author who writes about trauma, grief, loss, and personal transformation. He is a former U.S. Marine and the son of a Marine Korean War Combat Veteran and an Air Force photographer in Vietnam. His son, Danny, was an Army combat veteran and Purple Heart recipient who served two tours in Afghanistan with 10th Mountain Division. Tragically, Danny had died in high-speed, adrenaline-seeking motorcycle accident after completing his military service. It's important to note that John also lost his brother to a motorcycle accident. So he's been through a lot. He's also gone through an incredible amount of abuse as a child. I wanted to note that. And we talk about that in the episode. Through his writings, John is passionate about helping people who suffer from grief, loss, and trauma, including families who support the care for them. He brings reality-based insights to the field of recovery and mental health. He's got a brand new book out that I just read that is freaking amazing. And it took us on, took me on such a journey. And I'm not just saying that because like this book is actually awesome. And the journey that you go on is, that's just it. It's a journey. There's so many levels of his story, but it's also really entertaining and how he discovered, how he went through such challenging things in his life, discovered personal development, how he had this amazing aunt Gladys, who was like his guardian angel when he was a kid and giving him this insight into what's possible and really instilled these values about life into him at a young boy that guided him through his life, through plant medicine, through really amazing other transformational tools, including native American rituals, like vision quests, sweat lodges, that kind of stuff. And he's just been on a journey and the book That he wrote is called, Be the Dawn in the Darkness, The Relentless Pursuit of Becoming Who You're Meant to Be. And that's what he has been, is relentless to becoming who he is meant to be. And I hope that you guys as listeners of this show are the same. And I know that you are. This is John was the perfect guest for this show. And I think you guys are going to learn a lot. He's got a ton of insight into... This entire world of personal transformation. He's also got another book called Transitioning Veterans. It's a short audiobook that is really helpful also. And, you know, just the whole topic on veterans, they they have such a, you know, when you're in that world in the army, it's such I, I can't speak for it because I never have, but what I see from the outside is that it's such a rigid, hard, you know, hard life. And to be able to come into society is really challenging for people. And I was thinking about that as I was reading this book and I, I listened to a lot of it while I was in the sauna, actually, because I, I my brain starts to work. And I was just thinking about just how, how much, how difficult that must be to go from that, that, you know, that army mentality to real life or not real life, but it's a transition into like modern life society and you know to be compassionate and to kind of like be able to open your heart and you can see a lot of people suffer from ptsd including john and it's interesting for me to see the what people were able to do like how some people were able to overcome the addiction overcome the trauma and some weren't and that's that's what really fascinates me about the human experience is how some people can get through it and some people can't. And today's conversation, I'm really confident you guys will be inspired. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. J.H. Parker coming right up. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. John, we're doing it. Welcome to University of Adversity. I'm so excited to have you on, my man.
1: Same, same here, man. I've been looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. So your story is kind of what this show is made for, you know, and with your book, be the dawn of the darkness, the relentless pursuit of becoming who we are meant to be was just such a powerful journey in so many ways. And it it literally took me on a journey and there were so many things there in that book that I could resonate with and stuff that I had to be like, wow, how, some, how does somebody get out of that shit? You know, like some of the stuff that you went through. And, you know, there's so much there, but what I would, before we dive into like the meat of the book and everything and talk about your story, what... Why did you want to write this book? Like what was the what was the what was the feeling behind it that really inspired you to want to write this book and share this with the world?:
1: Well, it, it really started as therapeutic writing. I, I've been through a lot in my life, and I found that when I wrote about what I'd been through. <clears throat> and what I've learned, there was a therapeutic benefit. Like I found that I could, I could make sense of things when I could see it on paper. And, and it, it, it helped me process a lot of unresolved trauma. So it started as just a, a lot of little pieces of writing over 30 years that it got more clear. The more I did my work on myself, the more I really looked at my own transformation, the, 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 the better the quality the writing became. And I, I would never share this with the world. This was just terrible things that I wouldn't tell anybody. You know, if you knew about this, you, you know, it's imposter syndrome. Okay, so there's a big, big, big part of me that never wanted us to see the light of day. And like I, like my journals kind of thing. Right. And then I was watching a really interesting documentary called Finding Joe. And I'd been flipping through Netflix for quite a long time. I kept seeing this Finding Joe. I'm like, what in the world is that? So finally I looked at it and it's actually about finding Joseph Campbell, Mm. who was a writer and he studied all the different oral histories of tribes and cultures and Native Americans, and just really developed a sense of these common themes that every culture, every tribe that's ever existed has in their oral history and their storytelling. And it all has to do with this hero's journey. And I was fascinated by it. And I was watching it on my video on my computer while I was traveling. So I captured a screenshot of the hero's journey graphic. And I sat down, I thought, huh, I wonder what my story is. And I put it in PowerPoint. I started creating little snippets. And I put my life in the, in the same chronological arc of the hero's journey. And, and that became my table of contents. And so I was really fascinated. So I just started writing about the easiest stuff first. And I just saved the really bad, bad stuff for the very last. And, and it turned into a book. And I even wrote it under somebody else's name to just get it out. Like, I'm not really putting this out there still, right? And if I did, it'd be under somebody else's name, you know? So I had to go through these phases of like my my own reflection about why am I holding back and am I willing to be willing? Because I was really unwilling to put this out. <laughs> right. So that's kind of the, 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 that's how it came about and turned into what it is.
0: Yeah, it's like that it's kind of like you have to apply the work that you've been doing in that action itself, right? Like when you're writing the book and then sharing it, it's like, Oh shit. Like sometimes you have to, it, it, it becomes a lot harder because it it is, especially when you write a book like yours where you go so deep and you're so vulnerable, it's, it's, it's like a, it's one thing to write it. Then it's like, Oh, wait a minute. There's people that are going to read this thing. It's like, <laughs> and it's out there. Right. <laughs> it's true. It's
1: real. It's, it's terror. It's panic. It's all these things that keep you up late at night. But part of me is about go first. Like, I really work with a lot of people over the years that have trauma. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that I love most about it is I'm not a licensed therapist. I can tell people about struggle. I've been through struggle. I understand fear and trauma and self-loathing and depression and anxiety and major trauma. So I can talk about it and it develops a level of neutrality and rapport that leads to trust pretty quickly. So other people can open up and talk about what's going on for them. So I thought it has a lot to do with a matriarch in my family that was highly influential in my upbringing as a young boy. And so really, this is the honestly, this is a, as much of a tribute to my Aunt Gladys, my great Aunt Gladys, we called her GLAD, as it is to anything else. She is the one, when I was five years old and then six and seven and eight years old, she told me that I was going to do extraordinary things with my life. And I believed her because she said it. And she had that much power of, like, she could see the future, mm-hmm. you know. And so it helped me through the worst of times.
0: Yeah, because you had your dad was very hard on you, abusive, and you know, just thinking about what it's like to be a kid and you know, having to deal with just not the trying to predict like what behavior, what which, which, you know, which version of him you're going to get. And I could really like when you're talking about that in the book, I was like, oh man, the poor little guy, you know, like, because yeah it's it's such a challenging thing when you're a kid because also you don't have a filter you don't know right from wrong you just you, you don't have anything to compare it to right and but the thing is here is that you had aunt glad so you had this like this this voice of reason this love that was like shining love on you and giving you and it was so beautiful like the stuff that you two would do together and how she would help you realize you know what courage is and like really give you this this confidence that you know had to have helped you so much right like when you see when you think back about that like how different do you think it would have been if you didn't have somebody like that and and just in general or with people having that one person that believes in you and that's like there in your corner and just how important that is
1: Well, my wife says it really well. She didn't save my life. She provisioned me to save my own life. No shit. That's beautiful. Like she provisioned me to save my own life. Like the little nuggets of wisdom, you know, like you're going to be an adult someday. Do you think about being an adult someday, being free from your father and all this and like all the time? And that's all I thought about. You know, and so she reminded me that it's going to be coming up. You're going to be on your own. You got to focus on who you want to become. And because she knew my father was so violent with my whole family, he was an alcoholic. He was a Korean War Marine Corps combat veteran, and he was in Vietnam, you know, had a lot of bad things happen there too. And so she was provisioning me for the hero's journey ahead early on, and one of the best things that she did that changed my whole life was she made me focus on that someday I would be a father and how would I want to treat my children and we made a promise to each other one morning that I would never hit my children in anger and I would never have them live a fear in fear of me, and we bonded and I made that promise to her. And then when my son was eight years old, he and I made that same promise and we never broke it. And so on my dad's side of the family, it's a violent, the men are all violent, you know, a lot of veterans, a lot of trauma, a lot of really bad experiences. It doesn't excuse abuse, does not excuse abuse. And they were extremely abusive. And I broke that chain and my son broke that chain, this generational, you know, Issue that was impacting my entire history of my family tree.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough being a kid, you know. And so you decided to go and get into the military. And that whole world itself is just such a hardening experience, right? Like you, what you had to go through to be a Marine is something that most people aren't able to do, you know, like it's such a, it's such a hard battle. I mean, I, I can't even relate cause I've never done it, but some of the stories that you, that you had about that resilience, like what was driving you? Like how, like, I know you were, you, you wanted to prove your dad, but, prove your dad wrong, like, you know, that you can do this, but like, what was really driving you to do that, to want to be, to get into the Marine Corps? Like, what was that?
1: Well, it was a twisted sense of my getting my father's approval. There was part of that. You know, I went into the army first, but I got separated on a medical discharge just a, a week or 10 days prior to graduation because I had a pre-existing injury in my arm and I didn't have any feeling in this part of my hand or any real strength. But I was able to to hide out amongst of all the inductees, you know, just at the at the AFI station and pass all the physicals, and they didn't really were paying attention, so I thought I made it in. but it caught up with me and then they they saw that i I couldn't do push ups except on my mm-hmm. knuckle, and they I couldn't do pull ups because i I couldn't grip with these fingers, and so they just they recognized it and they separated me and then the th- they' just going home to my dad and him not even he's standing in the door not even shaking my hand and not, not letting me back in our family home, you know, it just pissed me off. You know, and so i I got the I got the idea that a few months after, you know, literally living in my next door neighbor's front yard and in a camper, you know, what would it take to get back in if it was possible? And I went back and I I talked to the recruiter and they they laughed. They're like, you already got separated on a medical. It's highly unlikely the medical board is going to even give you the time of day. And I'm like, so it's highly unlikely. It's not impossible. And they're like, it'd be <laughs> next to impossible. And so and so I just looked at that as my my, my possibility because all my friends had felonies. They weren't going anywhere. And if I get, didn't get out of there, I was going to end up just like them. So I had, and plus I was really enraged at my, my dad. You know, I didn't want to, ha- I, he would never abuse me again. And I was going to see to that. So... I was able to go past my physical and actually get qualified to go back in the military. But instead of going to the Army, I went in the Marine Corps, you know. And, you know, it was it was a big accomplishment to be able to get back in. And But I had a rage problem. I got a retribution problem. It's, there's a chapter in the book called Retribution is Far Beyond Rage. Like when you've been suppressed and you've been beat down and you've been abused, there's a level of retribution that is far beyond rage where... You want your abuser to pay. And so I went in because I was going to come back and he would never, ever, he would never hurt my family again. So that was part of my mentality. And I grew up in a bad neighborhood of Southwest Phoenix. And so always getting chased by groups of guys getting beat up. So I was going to, I wasn't going to take their shit either anymore. So I went in with a vengeance, like I'm going to go learn how to take care of myself. And so it was big motivation you know, trying to make my dad pr- proud of me in a twisted way. I think every kid wants that. But on the other hand, I could care less about what he thought about me. So it was really kind of a
0: confliction. Do you ever think what you would have gone into if that wasn't a direction? Because it's crazy, right? Like we have, you had this abusive dad that was so hard on you, but then you ended up going down this road and now look who you are now, what you're able to do. It's like, it's hard sometimes when we go back because we're like, well, if I didn't go through that. Like, would I have ended up, you know, at the same place? And would I had as as much of a rich experience of life and growth? But you would never want to wish that on somebody. But it's always, you look back and you're like, shit, what would, what, which path would I have taken? Do you ever wonder like how, what that would have looked like? Like what, what interested you at that age that maybe you would have gone differently if that didn't happen?
1: Well, again, glads wisdom parallels my entire life to this day and into the future. Like the, the pearls of wisdom that she shared with me that I didn't understand carried with me throughout my lifetime. And we get to talk about it until she passed away when I was in my forties. And so another thing that she shared with me that got me through the worst is she said she researched all the major religions in the world And she said that she narrowed it down to a common thread. When you take out the extreme aspects of every religion, God is love. God is love. And I'm like, wow, okay. That sounded real reasonable. And here's the thing. It only takes one adult of healthy character to influence a child for life. Yeah. And that's what she knew she was doing. She said, God is love. And she said, do you believe that? And I said, and I really couldn't respond. But when I did, I said, it may be true for you, but it's not for me because I'm afraid all the time, you know? And uh, so, no, I I don't, I don't, I don't see it. And so she said, well, you'll someday you'll discover that God is love and that you'll find your purpose. Really? Do you have a purpose? I'm like, well, I think I'm too young to have a purpose, you know, and I'm hungry. She said like, okay, well, let's go get something to eat. So she really treated me like this young boy who was trying to figure it out, but those nuggets stayed with me. But the most interesting thing is throughout my life, when I've gotten in the worst situations where it life-threatening situations, just before the moment of impact when bad things are happening, I cannot tell you how many times I asked myself, if God is love, why is this happening to me? And right. glad, glad was in my mind. I'm like, glad, wh- why is this happening to me? Like really, really catastrophic things, you know, for any normal person, and so that that curiosity, why is it ha- why is this happening to me didn't come to me till I was fifty two. <laughs> and I didn't find one ounce of joy in my life, not really any fulfillment, I had accomplishments, you know, and I was just like I was on a pursuit, like in like I heard like in Africa when the sun rises up and you're on the plains and whether you're the hunter or the hunted, you better be running. And that was my life, my whole life. Like I was always running away from my upbringing, and bad things and running towards who I wanted to become and what I, how I wanted things to be different. So each are forms of massive power and motivation. You're either moving away from what you don't want or you're moving towards what you do want and and her her wisdom really helped me make sense of it, and to kind of round it out, I finally understood, after doing a bunch of plant medicine journeys and some Native American vision quests, that the purpose of my suffering was so I could develop empathy to understand the pain of others, so I could relate to the pain and the suffering of others. And that all made sense all of a sudden, like there's a reason for my suffering, and now I get it I don't suffer anymore. I may mean, I suffer may I mean, if I didn't know better I, I could see that I have had, had long term depression, anxiety, trauma, lots of things, but I suffer so little when I see it I'm able to pop out of it I don't spend time there anymore, but it occupied a lot of space for all, most of my life
0: yeah that that part really landed with me. I remember I was listening to your book. I was riding a riding the the bike, and I remember hearing that about you getting that vision about God you know essentially bringing you know adversity challenges to you so that you can see empathy in other people. you can feel it, and that really landed with me because sometimes. You know, and people that listen to the show, we've heard all kinds of different stories. And it's always like, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's gross. It's for growth. You know, all these, you know, adversity is to bring you to the next level. You hear these different reasons why adversity happens. But then when you, when, when hearing that really made a lot of sense because, oh, yeah, you actually develop more empathy for people for yourself for other people and then you're able to understand and relate and have more compassion and it's just it's so beautiful and I never looked at it like that before I never really I may have felt it but that really landed for me so that part itself man thank you for that because that was like one of you know those one of those golden nuggets that I think a lot of people all of you listening like think about that all of the, the shit you've gone through in your life, you know, how much empathy have you been able to, you know, receive from that and see in others? And it's just, it's a powerful, powerful lesson.
1: Well, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I keep hearkening back to Glad's wisdom and she said, pay attention to the people, the random people you seem to meet by chance, because often they are the messengers that are here to teach you the most. yeah. So she embedded into me an innate curiosity no matter what I'm going through. I get a flat tire. Who am I supposed to meet? I mean, and they appear, these magical helpers.
0: Yeah, that. And and it's great that you had that open mind because, you know, most kids, even not having, not being abused, wouldn't be as open as you were to see those things right like the fact that you remembered that stuff and it landed is 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 pretty awesome man to be able to know that she impacted you so much that it literally carried you through your life and you did and and you talk about these different people or messengers that come and when you're you know when you're getting out of when you're transitioning out how you were introduced to personal development and that's always interesting too because there's always this point. Cause I like to ask people, I'm like, yeah, but when did things switch? Like, when did you start to like, you know, you're going through this shit, you're, you're in this, this program. And then all of a sudden you, you read a book or something and it was really interesting because you, somebody was telling you about that. Tell us a little bit about that story, how that unfolded, like what, how, how that person sort of came into your life. And then you went down that personal development road a little bit.
1: Yeah. Sometimes messages are only in your, life for minutes. Like I bumped into a guy in Okinawa, Japan at a USO two weeks before I was getting out of the Marine Corps. And we were overly confident, you know, we, we you know, Marines maybe all aren't always the the, the toughest, but man, they share the biggest egos because they they build you. They build this galvanized sense of you got you got a lineage. You have to memorize the history of the Marine Corps. Like you yeah. are You just you you just personify what it is to be a marine, okay? And it's overconfident, and you 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 need to be motivated to run towards machine gun fire, you know. So it's crazy. crazy, Crazy. So here we are. We're like we're sitting in this USO. We're drinking a lot of beer and we're getting really loud. And this this warrant officer, who a warrant officer is a guy who was enlisted, went back to school, came back in as an officer. He's watching us the ridiculousness of our conversations. And when I went to get another pitcher of beer, I I pulled up next to him and he introduced himself and and asked me if he'd give me some advice. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was, my life was about to change. You know, he said, you know, you're going to get out. And within a couple of days, probably, probably not more than a week or so, you're going to realize that the, that the world doesn't need another hard ass Marine who could parachute out of helicopters at night and carry big heavy packs. They just don't care. And you're also going to know, you're going to notice that the world is exactly the same as when you left, but you've changed, you know? And I, I kind of said that, yeah, since I left as a kid, you know, the only difference is they're still doing the same thing, but you know, they've gotten pudgier and they've lost some, they got facial hair, you know, all my friends have kind of grown up a bit while I've been over here in the Marine Corps. And so, He said, if if I were you, I wouldn't be here drinking with my buddies. I'd be thinking more about what it's going to be like to be out in the world. He said, I'd go to the closest bookstore. I'd go to the self-help section, not the psychology section. And I'd look at all the spines of the books, and I'd, I'd pick some books that really jump off the shelf at me, and I'd start reading about who I'm becoming. You know, I had a rage problem serious rage problem. I got in a lot of trouble in the Marines for my, 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 my temper. Right. And so I wasn't going to counseling. You got to tell, you have to tell somebody you're weak. I well, was. You,
0: you wouldn't put up with people's shit. So part of that was like, you know, I have it was respectable, but yeah, I I, I, I hear yeah, you're you're so like, you. You're like, you wouldn't take shit from people, man. You know, like,
1: not, it's too, to my but, detriment, you know, and I see that now, <laughs> you know, but I wasn't going to go to counseling. There's no way. Yeah. You know, my dad, when he came back from Vietnam, they made him go see a counselor. And the instant the counselor said, I understand how you feel. He called him an idiot, stood up and walked out the door. Right. So, but personal development, like this was an eye-opening thing. So I didn't really understand what he was saying, but he said, well, just take my word for it. You know, and we talked for a couple of minutes more. Don't remember what he said after that, I shook his hand. He walked out the door. I, brought, I grabbed my buddy Chuck and I said, Hey, we got to go. We got to, we got to get out of here right now. So we jumped in a taxi and I joke about it. They they didn't have bookstores on Marine bases. So we had to go to the Air Force base like six miles away over in Kadena. And I found the self-help section and I picked up three books that jumped off the shelf at me. One was called Think and Grow Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. The other one was The Magic of Thinking Big by Schwartz. And the third was Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, which I I had to pick it up because it's such a weird title. Yeah. But then when I read... The intro: This guy's a plastic surgeon who made people beautiful, but because of their low self-esteem, they couldn't see it. And that was me. I'm impeccable in this Marine Corps uniform, but inside, I'm just all kinds of broken. You know, it's something wrong with me and my self-worth. It's just, you know, it's it, it was a lack of internal cohesion. Like who I projected to others definitely didn't reflect who I was deep down inside. So that that book spoke to me. So personal development became my path to recovery. And I've been paying that conversation forward thousands and thousands of times with strangers and people that I work with and that I help without asking anything in return, which, which by the way, the law of reciprocity has served me more than anything else. So when I was a little older, this will fit in line with this, 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 these messengers and personal development. She shared with me the law of reciprocity, which is, number one, show up. A lot of people just don't do a good job of showing up, you know, being present, 100%, you know, or really, really being present when they're engaged, be there. Yeah. And then, two, do what you say you're going to do. Not a lot of people do that. So number three is give a shit. We I mean, care about the outcomes for the person you're trying to help. And number four, ask nothing in return. That's what she meant by the law of reciprocity is if you exercise that in the giving, there's no agenda. There's no hooks where you need to get something from the exchange. And it took me a while to, read, to, to really understand this because I had a lot of bad things happen, like my, my son passing away. It, tra- it transformed my life. Like it, it, it knocked me down. Like Otis Taylor has a song called Live Your Life. And in the lyrics, it says, death ain't going to touch you in your heart. It's just going to come on up. It's just going to walk on up and knock you down. And that's what happened to me unexpectedly. And I became the wounded healer for 10 years after that, where I needed to adopt at-risk vets. I needed to work with people who are traumatized so I can move my pain. You know, so these are other little strategies where it's okay if you're suffering to to move your pain by helping others until you can figure it out. And over time, my trauma and my pain matured, and I grew and evolved through the worst parts of that process. And what you're left with over time is a real mixed sense of emotions about missing someone that's gone but being thankful for the growth you've
0: experienced because of it what yeah i mean this is kind of related to that point it's around the grief it's there's no there's no field manual for grief right there's no like one way and it's such a mind fuck because each time that happens it hits you differently and you know you lost your brother you lost your son and they obviously are different so i guess my question is is like how what what is what was your process like how did you you know from the initial news to how you had to move through it you know because some people can't handle that. I know that when my dad lost, we lost my younger brother within a year, he just unraveled and ended up getting cancer. It was just that he didn't have the tools to be able to deal with the grief. That's my theory anyways. And, you know, a lot of people think they have they have the the tools and then boom, they get hit with it and they don't know how to deal with it. So, what did that look like for you? And what did what was the what did you? Yeah, what did that look like for you? And kind of like, what's the process of grief to somebody that may be going through something similar?
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> after talking with vets at risk vets for so many years, I and my son, who was an at risk combat vet, yes. needed two tours and Af- two deployments in Afghanistan. You know, I think. Victor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, is the book that he wrote. Yeah. He was a, a psychiatrist. I believe he's a psychiatrist. He was a mental health professional who was taken to Auschwitz or some of the, I think, two d- different concentration camps during World War yeah. II. And they took his family away and he knew they were dead. And then they ordered him to take off all his clothes and strip down. And then they told him to take off his wedding ring. And in that moment, he realized that the only control he had was how he res- was responding to his, how he chose to respond to his captors. And that seed grew into an oak tree. That seed created this whole mentality for him that got him not only through the concentration camps, but he started writing the script, the manuscript for Man Search for Meeting and kept it sewn into his jacket lining. You know, so all the concepts that you see and understand in his work were formed through real, real crucible of life. And, and what I'm getting at is, in summary, what he's saying is there must be some meaning or purpose for what you've gone through. And it's up to us to find out what that is. We need to look in our lives and say, what meaning and purpose can I derive from my suffering for the sake of Why? Did this happen to me? You know, and that really helped me become curious. I was still the wounded healer and I still was really comfortable hanging out with really traumatized people. We were like the walking wounded, you know, but we understood each other. And so, so for me, finding meaning and purpose through my struggles meant being of service to others. It was a big, big, simple, profound, awareness that I, I needed to move my pain. Um, I did have suicidal thoughts at one time. I did have like, my world is ended. Right. And so you you have to sit down and say, okay, what, what in the world can I do with my loss? The, The person that's not here, which is my son, what would he have me do? What, what would be the best thing I could do to honor him? So I started reframing, Like my, my, you know, my life is terrible. I, you know, I started reframing, like, what would he be doing? What would he and I be doing together? What did we start out doing already? Like we were, he was, he was going to Syracuse university to get his master's in social work and he was going to be a counselor for veterans. And we were going to, we were writing programs and conceptualizing things. So I just pretty much continued on what he and I had started and so that was, I guess that's that's my biggest thing is find some way of creating meaning and purpose. And if you can't figure it out, go find other people that you can relate to that are in your tribe that maybe are suffering that maybe you could offer some way of assisting. Maybe it's just going to making lunch, you know, for 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 some people. Maybe maybe it's sitting down and talking to them. Maybe it's volunteering, but. But really, really, while you're in this dilemma and trying to process what's going on, personal development, being around other people who are, who are suffering, but they're showing up. They're trying to figure out how to make meaning of their own life. Like I found a lot of solace in that. And then for me, men's work. I love doing men's work because it's honest. You know, we aren't focusing on being impeccable because there's a, there are, when you mix men and women together there's always this level of impeccability where you know we have to show up and there's the alphas or the alpha kind of thing and but working with men it's 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 honest because we can talk about shame we can talk about suffering we can talk about real violence and trauma and that that really we can talk about shadow work we can we can really get into what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be in a relationship you know, so I don't know. Is that making sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple things there that I want to, I want to just put a stamp on the the men's work. I want to come back to that. I just want to go back to what you said about something else, because the next sure. thing will be the men's work for sure. I, I, that's, I definitely don't want to forget that point. Why do you think, okay, this bet goes back to God is love. And this goes back to seeing the lesson in the adversity, in the loss. Why do you think people struggle with this so much? Why do people go into the victim mode where it becomes, why me? Why is God doing this to me? Why is that? Why are most people like that? Like, What is the, what is the, the driving factor of that? Because that's what I feel like the majority of our society is in most situations.
1: Well, I think we, if we had a definitive answer for everybody, it would be the world would be a better place. But I can tell you from my own journey, I can't speak for other people, but I can tell you what I've seen most often in the people that I worked with. It's we create conclusions about what it is that our experiences mean to us. Like I used to have a conclusion that there must be something wrong with me. Otherwise, why would my dad treat me like this? Why would I get in all this trouble? Why right. would all this violence happening? There must be something wrong with me. Right. So my mind did the only thing it's designed to do. The miracle of our mind is to gather evidence to support whatever conclusion I was focusing on. And then that evidence would freak me out and cause me to be nervous because there must be something wrong with me because I have a lot of evidence of all these things. And they would cause me to show up in the world and behave in a way that was kind of frenetic and nervous. And, and in my neighborhood, you know, if you show up frenetic and nervous predators, they they recognize that. So, right. So I was, I, I don't see bullying. I was terrorized by groups of guys. Yeah. So. My conclusions were the problem. I was gathering evidence to support unresourceful conclusions, and I was showing up as nervous and and then people showed up around me in a way that was very predatory, which reinforced the conclusion that something's wrong with me. Okay? This isn't my work. This is from Maria Nemeth. She wrote a book called Mastering Life's Energies, and she is a really... There's a chapter in the book about Maria, you know, and and... I talk about how I've discovered that something must be wrong with me, there's something wrong with me, was really just ruling my life. So I Mm -hmm. think if there's one thing I could help people with is conveying that same message that I was given by Maria, which is change your conclusions, change the internal questions that you're asking about yourself. And in my case, I was able to say, what am I supposed to be learning from this when I got in really bad situations? Well, I learned that I pretty much created a lot of them. There was some way that I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and I could have made better choices. But my point is my evidence gathering process evolved because the question evolved. So instead of something's wrong with me, what am I supposed to be learning? All of a sudden, I started realizing, what am I supposed to be learning? I'm not that little kid anymore. I'm not that scared kid. Okay. I went in the Marine Corps. I mean, I'm, I'm a different person, you know? I'm a learner. I could learn things. And so I started showing up in the world. My behavior was more curious and relaxed and engaging. And people started showing up that were curious, relaxed, and engaging. And it reinforced the conclusion that I'm a learner. I know how to learn. So that's just a real quick example. Like go no further than man search for meaning. What purposes are what purpose for my suffering? And then the, the, the four boxes, as it's called. If you, if you buy Mastering Life's Energies, page 99 to 111, it explains this really well. It's not something I created, but I point at good
0: tools and that's one of the better ones. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's so important because I feel like that's really, isn't that really the thing? It's like, what tools do you have that you can use when shit hits the fan so that you can respond Properly, you know, so you can that is really the factor, right? In in life. It's like, what makes what what's the difference between somebody and somebody else? Well, if everything was easy for everybody, you wouldn't be able to tell. But really, it's like, how does this person respond to a difficult situation? It's like, what, how do they look at it? How do they see it? Right. It's so interesting, right? And it's like these things, these, these. That's such a great way to say it. like it's 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 just like looking at it and not making the meaning about you like you're something's wrong with you, right? It's not like right, bad boy or bad girl. it's it's like we have to almost see from a bigger a wider lens like, hey, maybe this isn't working out right now because it's actually serving us long term, right? Like maybe there there could be these There's other factors in and i feel like that can be really helpful and it's it's just so important to have that perspective in those tools because man it's so easy and i can i can it's no matter how much work that i do i'll still go back to those those moments of like why I, poor me poor me the difference is, and you can probably agree it happens, but it's like, how long do you bounce, how long before you bounce back to the driver's seat, right? Where you're like, oh, okay.
1: I, That's a I, really good point, Lance. That's a really, really important point because you're asking what are, what can you do when you get triggered? So I'll be real brief, but I actually developed a process for myself. And by the way, I'm not, I say this probably too often, I'm not here to teach anybody anything. I'm really not interested in being seen. I'm not a teacher because I'm in this with you every day. I get triggered just like anybody else who suffers from trauma and loss and all this stuff. But I've been able to learn how to recover like quickly, like so quickly that I can self regulate and I can manage my life. Okay. Cause I would spend so much time being triggered that my life was consumed with self medicating. like I smoked weed my whole life and now I can't smoke weed. I didn't like myself. I had a lot of self-loathing and I had a lot of violence. And so I would smoke weed to check out, but then I get really paranoid. But I'd rather be really paranoid and numb than than vulnerable and, and and exposed and you know the so I just had a terrible existence. And then the more I did the work on myself with myself, I learned to like myself and I couldn't even say love myself because that was too soft, right? right? The more I learned to to love myself, the more I realized that I don't need to smoke weed because I like who I am. I like who I've become and I don't want to check out. Same with too much alcohol, same with lots of things. But what I developed was a three-step process when I get triggered that changed my life. You know, number one, I didn't didn't really recognize when I was triggered. I just got triggered and I would start self-medicating. I just start workaholism you know, athletics, you know, just sitting and ruminating, you know, drinking, smoking weed. You know, I was just really susceptible to self-medicating, whatever you want to call self-medicating, but anything, check out, anything to go numb, not deal with what's going on. But then I realized, you know, that, that when I, when I got triggered, I could recognize that I'm triggered. Instead of being in it, I can pull back. I could zoom out. Instead of being full-blown in it, I could pull out and pop out of it and I could look at it like sitting in a theater watching it up on a screen was really big for me. Like I'm yeah. not in it. Okay. I'm not in the trauma. I, my heart rate's going like that. I am now able to observe it. You feel my heart rate drop down a little bit. Oh, okay. I'm not in danger. Bad things happen. Our mind can revivify as if it's right now. So by observing it, number one, say to yourself, I'm triggered. Or say to the person you're with, hey, I'm a little triggered right now. But just let them know that I don't need any help. I can self-regulate. I'm responsible for me. But I really started noticing and taking responsibility. Wow, I'm triggered right now. And the more I did that, the more I realized that I'm not breathing. When I get amped up and I get triggered, I go from full-blown, moving, full-color, panoramic, like I'm talking to you right now, into this black and white tunnel vision. And I'm just zeroing in. All my resources are shutting down. And I'm not breathing. It's like a suspenseful breathing, right? And so I'm panicking, right? And so number one, recognize. Number two is take a deep breath. Like oxygen is the antidote for anxiety. So that's what a second thing I learned was some breathing techniques. In the military, they call it tactical breathing. Where you breathe in for five through your nose, hold for five, out for five, hold for five, in for five. So I would go through this tactical breathing process. Like... People in the military, they don't want to talk about yogic breathing and, you know, it, 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 they, they want to talk about tactical breathing because it sounds like it, it's more relevant. Yeah. And learn how to breathe. And then the third thing was to focus on something more interesting. Focus on something. Like if you're focused on anger, you know, automatically, you're, like your thoughts create the emotions you experience and the emotions you experience create the chemical soup that your body operates in. You know, you're literally generating the, your body chemistry by what you think about and the emotions it's generating. Well, that's that's Joe Dispenza's work. You know a lot about that, you know. And so, so changing the focus of your attention. So recognize you're triggered, call it out, take a breath, get some oxygen, and then shift the focus of your attention. And in my audio book that I did prior to this book, you know, I had a guy had this veteran focus on when his his daughter was born you know, and he's a hardcore vet and he's a hard man, you know, but the instant I started talking about when his daughter looked into his eyes for the first time and he noticed they were having that moment of connection, his whole physiology changed. His whole language, languaging is just, he softened up instantaneously. We were able to look at, wow, what just happened there? He's like, wow, that was really a moment. So this, this, this work is about watching your thoughts and not being in your thoughts and shifting the focus of your attention with the movies and the pictures and the things that are important to you. It could be your service dog, could be a kitten, could be somebody you love, but you change the focus of your attention. And so by doing this three-step process, I was able to really quickly self-regulate. And I'll, I'll sum it up with saying, your life happens between your triggers. That's what I needed to discover because I was walking around triggered all day long.
0: Oh, man, that's so good. That's so true. Think about that for a second, right? Like your life happens between your triggers because there's always triggers throughout the day, yeah, and good and bad, by the way, there are positive triggers, yeah, it's and but you can like really get lost in that negativity. You can just fucking spiral, and all of a sudden the day is like, oh everything sucks, I suck, I'm ugly. I'm, it's like becomes this like crazy catastrophic event. And it's like, whoa, 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 how did this happen? How did I get here from that? Right? Isn't that, it's fascinating how that happens. Fascinating. You
1: spend way too much time and stinking thinking, right? Like, yeah. so you know, you're, you're making meaning of it. Like this means something, you know, life is hard, but you know what? It's not. Yeah, it's kind of a contradiction in terms. It's it's so, if you focus on life is fucking hard, it's going to be fucking hard. Right. You know, <laughs> and the inner you know, that th- part of it is, man, I'm always like that or I'm always depressed. Are you really? Are you always depressed? Well, maybe not always. Okay, so you're not always depressed. So I'm a, I'm constantly asking people to think about what, what you just said. You know? Right. There's a part of you, sure. Where you feel depressed, but does that represent who you are? Are you really depressed when you're having joy with your kids watching them play? Well, not really. Okay. So you're not always depressed, but you just said, I'm always depressed. Mm -hmm. So you can clean up your, your man, how you're showing up just by realizing, wow, there are times when I'm really depressed. What causes me to get triggered into depression? Now that's a more resourceful way to look at it. than I'm always depressed. So if I can set up and provision myself when I get triggered the next time to ricochet out of what would have been a depressive part of me, depressive state into, wow, I see it. Again, all I'm really asking you to look at is, do you see it? Yeah. And how often does this theme come up where you're just generalizing things and making yourself feel like shit?
0: Yeah, and and I feel like the more you become aware of this and do this work the more you realize how powerful language is like you catch yourself saying things like i i know for myself i say i'm like no you're not you're not that come on like you know theater critic wants to say this and then you know the inner cheerleader's like no come on man you don't need to say that about yourself it's like this dialogue that you you gotta you have to learn to notice because i see it all the time with people too it's like and, and And it's like, man, don't say that about yourself. Like don't say that. You're not that. That's like part of you that's feeling depressed.'re you're, you're feeling sad. you're not you're not that thing. you know and, and and it's just amazing to watch because sometimes somebody's language, you can see why they're in the position they're in because of the language. and, and if that's how they speak, all the time, that's the then that's what their dominating thought is. So it must be how they feel inside. And it's it's man, the language has so much more power than we give it credit for. People just say, oh yeah, I just say things, but you're saying things, but you have to realize like your words are powerful. They have power. Yeah.
1: For me it was like I was in a box, <clears throat> but I was in a hamster wheel in the box. Yeah. And I was on this hamster wheel, right? Racing away and it's just racing, racing thoughts that would be relentless. They would be waking me up in the middle of the night, constantly telling me to be careful, watch out. This person's an idiot. All Just all kinds of themes. So even if I got off the hamster wheel, I was still in a box. Okay. I had to really, really think about, really think about this internal vocabulary. I mean, Tony Robbins, he's a great and interesting work. You know, his transformational vocabulary, he calls it. Watch your TV. Watch how you are languaging to yourself, yeah. and it, it will change the trajectory of your life. When you hear your kids saying things, they're typically repeating stuff you've said, and that really should sting anybody, like, wow, you know, I, I've got plenty of stories about that, but really, it's about watching your internal vocabulary. You know, I used to have a pattern of saying, man, I'm a fucking idiot, because things would happen. Right, and I absolutely had to stop saying that, and then there there's just so much to this just in this point right here about it about changing the internal dialogue and I, and that's another reason why personal development of any sort if you're an auditory learner, go start come become addicted to audiobooks in self help you know if you're a reader, go on the internet and look up self help look at you know whatever flips your switch look for any title that just gets your attention and start reading about who you're becoming that'll get you out of a negative state pretty quickly
0: mm. yeah it's essential i don't know where i'd be without it either i i wanted to ask you something that just came came up that i feel like is important and it's around self-worth i've talked about this a little bit in the last few episodes and around self-worth and, like, scarcity mindset around, like, I'm curious for you because you grew up in, you know, a very challenging situation. And then you did a lot of work on yourself. You were able to be successful in your life. And I am I guess my question is, like, first of all, in the men's work that you do, do you see a self-worth as being, a major issue. And how does somebody start to create that worth within themselves? I guess that abundance, because that's a real thing. There's so much of that scarcity where that you could fall into well, because it was hard or I didn't have a lot of money growing up, I've created this story that that's just going to keep happening. And I'm curious how that looked for you because, you know, you were able to create a lot of success. So the work that you've done, what was the biggest, like, what pushed the needle forward for that self worth, that actual feeling of like, I'm worthy to be here? I'm worthy of this and to attract that into your life. Does that make sense? That, that question is kind of a big question. It's, it's such a, Man,
1: it's that's why I named the subtitle of the book, The Relentless Pursuit of Becoming Who We Are Meant to Be. And again, I I just speak for myself, man. I I look at it as we came into this world as a clean hard drive. We may have some, some genetic, you know, issues very rarely, but it happens. But then we fill up the hard drive with all that shit that's happened to us. Okay. And so there's a really good book. I'm going to introduce, I'm going to go off on a riff here a little bit, but it's perfect. it's it's a really good book by Oprah Winfrey and it's called What Happened to You. And she co-narrates it with Bruce Perry who's a world-renowned like child psychologist type of, you know, expert. And she's going through her life experiences and what he's doing is stopping and is talking about what what part of the brain at that age was impacted with that traumatic experience you know and so for me learning about adverse childhood experiences was a huge eye opener for me it's called the aces scale mm-hmm. if you look up there's a bunch of different websites adverse childhood experiences there's a book called there's a website called truesage.com where you can actually take the the aces survey right and what it is it's 10 questions about your childhood and you answer yes or no. And based on the number of yeses you had, it, it, it creates a whole, it activates a whole international body of research that has been conducted over many decades. That if you answer four yeses out of 10, you know, basically your chances of uh, onset, long-term diabetes, hypertension, suicide, alcoholism, drug addiction, domestic violence, divorce is, is, is measurably higher. If you get above a six, if you get above a six, it goes up, it goes up exponentially. And statistically, someone can lose 20 years off their lifespan just because how much shit that they're carrying. Okay. And on a scale of one out of 10, I'm a 10. You know, so what really got my attention is, yeah, bad things happen to me. You know, bad things happen to me. And I'm really working on looking into the shadows, like in shining a conscious light into what's not resolved and what I've been through and making meaning of it, making meaning of it, transcending it to where my life is good. My life is manageable. I have joy. I I don't suffer to anywhere to the degree that I used to. But because I, I was able to discover tools like the ACES scale and the audiobook, What Happened to You with Oprah Winfrey, just one small example, once again, of personal development. Be a learner. Like, be curious. And when you're sitting back and you're in your cave and it's cold and it's dark and you're okay because you created it, I'm fine. Like, I've got a cave like that. Go walk around. Go walk around the block and put your earbuds in. And put something on that's going to stimulate your mind and bring your focus of attention back to the possibility of who you're becoming. Because that part of you is only a part of you. When you're feeling stuck, when you're feeling traumatized, it's not, it's, it don't, don't forget, you know, that critical mind that's always telling you that something's wrong. It works for you, not the other way around. At some point, when you were traumatized and some bad things happened, your critical mind jumped in and took over and said, shut the fuck up. I can handle this, right? You're obviously not able to handle this. And then that takes control. And for most of us, that becomes our ego. It becomes our identity. But that's not not really who we are. It, It represents that bad things have happened, but it represents the conditioned self, also known as the ego. And it doesn't like to be threatened. Doesn't like to have be harmed or encroached upon or give up any ground, and so that's a whole other body of work. But when you can start, when you can start transcending your trauma and you can start working with your ego and working with that traumatized self, that part of you, without it feeling threatened, you have the possibility of transforming your awareness about who you are and who you can become, because it's no longer saying "sit back, sh- shut up, I got this." There's a movie with Ed Norton where he plays a, a person on death row where he's really good at playing this traumatized version of himself who can't comprehend like anything about doing anything violent. And then this other side that comes out and will just pin you against the wall and threaten your life, right? That's kind of like the, the rational, reasonable mind versus the critical mind.
0: How much do you think that your, the discipline that you learned in the marines and the army had as a factor later on at using that discipline in your development because there is there is a certain amount of work that needs to be done to be successful and if you don't have discipline it's very difficult to be able to make progress and i'm just curious like how much you see that that aspect of that discipline of like, you know, it must have been rigid, but at the same time, it must have served you in a way that, you know, a lot of people maybe that didn't have that may not, you know, like someone that doesn't have that disciplined kind of, you know, I don't want to say like forced into them, but there has to be something great that comes from doing that kind of disciplined work like in the army, right? Did you say that has helped you a little bit, or what? What do you unpack that a little bit? It trans well. The the Marine
1: Corps transformed me into somebody who felt pain and gave up, into somebody who could learn how to take the pain and harden up, right? And uh, and then once you harden up and you know that you can handle it, then you, my my fitness levels just exploded to a whole nother level. So there's that aspect of it. Yeah. But I was also the most unruly incorrigible youngster and young man. And I didn't know I had a rage problem and a problem with authority until I got off the bus in Marine Corps boot camp, And the first thing they tell you is get on the yellow footprints, all these painted yellow, hundreds and hundreds of yellow footprints. And they just tell you to shut your mouth, get on the yellow footprints and stand there until we're ready to do what's next. And so I don't like to be told what to do. Okay. And <laughs> I had, a, I had a problem with authority and Boy, go to the Marine Corps if you have a problem with authority. I got in a lot of trouble because of that non-conforming. I figured out I was a non-conformist. Yeah, but 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 I also volunteered. I also got into a really really awesome unit where we get to go to parachute school. We get to do a lot of stuff, you know. And so I I was able to be fortunate to be able to get into something really unique, and that it, it it really did a lot for my my self worth. But I always had this independent, this need for autonomy, and I could not be controlled. My biggest thing was I needed to be in control and I didn't like to be controlled. Yeah. So, like we talked about that, there's, yeah. some, I came across a behavioral assessment tool that changed my, again, changed the trajectory of my life. I met two messengers who introduced me to a tool that was used back in World War II to separate bomber pilots from fighter pilots and who should go to what school And they told me that my when I when I did this little simple survey, your, your need here's the thing. your need to control conflicts with your need to not be controlled. Does that make sense to you? And I'm like, say that again. And it and explained all the disciplinary problems that I had had. yeah, so I was able to use that to in my life to then start saying, how do I direct this force of nature? How do I, and everybody has a superpower. I have found, I found some of mine.
0: See, I can relate with that, but then I, you know, I hated having a boss, but I also liked having a boss because then I could, it would, it would like keep me sometimes it's like, yeah, just tell me what to do so I can do it. But then I would be like, fuck, I don't like having a boss. It's like a, so then, but then you have to step into, if you don't want that authority, you have to be the authority yourself. Well, let's put, let's define that.
1: Like you, I think what I'm what I'm saying is, I really like bosses. I respect, and yeah. they respect me. Yeah, like yeah. Like I'll, I'll I'll just do anything for them. But same. If I don't respect them, and if they're they're not treating me with respect, then th- then they they know it. I, you know, I, I just I just won't respond. I'll do things my own way. I'm a lot more mature now, but I can see back in my younger years, you know, that that kept me that limited my potential because I was so sensitive to being disrespected. And overmanaged. That was my thing. So I had, that's what a big thing for me to work on. And that, and that's really transcended away. It's no longer my presenting life problem.
0: Where do you see, I want to go back to this, this point about men's work. Where do you see the biggest issue in men today? Like, because you see it all over the internet, you see people's opinions about men and, you know, I feel like a lot of men are struggling. And I think what the work with men is so important. But where do you see from the work that you've done the biggest issue right now with men?
1: I don't think most men know it's even available. I mean, we're getting to the point now where there's a tipping point tipping point, and there's a lot of organizations out there. You know, if you just Google men's transformational work, there are tons of really, really brilliant men who've done their work who are now leading retreats. You know, I think that's, I think it's a new frontier. I think it's just starting to mature. There are some really old established men's organizations like the Mankind Project. You know, I went through that, you know, 15 years ago and all the founders are are getting up in years, but now there's a younger generation of men who really went through a lot of shit in their early teens with drug addictions and alcohol, alcoholism. And now they're, they're in their late twenties, thirties, and they're super mature. They know their stuff. They know their work and they're doing really good work, you know? And so I would say, be curious because you, you just got to be able to get out of your own way and look at yourself honestly and having other men talk about their vulnerable vulnerabilities and to be so raw and so transparent about it. You can learn vicariously about what's going on for you. That was an important part for me. And, and then the plant medicine work, which is probably a whole other program, but the plant medicine work with men was the most important transformational work in my existence because I was able to transcend my sense of self, my ego, my conditioned way of being and go so far beyond thought and pure awareness that... I could see myself, I could see my suffering, and I could transcend that. And I was able to find find a place for me that was not just the absence of suffering, but not even the possibility of suffering, not even the possibility of trauma. And when I was able to reach that place, I was able to tether myself there and really bring that back into my daily waking hours. And the more, i I, I don't do a lot of plant medicine at all anymore. But what it really did was it popped me open where I could see that I wasn't my trauma. Bad things happen. But I got to, it's like soul retrieval. I was able to go back and find that essence of who I really am before everything happened and hold in perspective that bad things actually happen, but it doesn't represent who I am really, really deep down. So the personal development work is where it started and then maturing into Native American rituals and And, you know, vision class was very helpful. And then today's day and age, ketamine, you can have it legally prescribed and it only lasts about an hour. It's amazing. It takes you completely out of your thinking mind and it puts you into this, this pure awareness where it's a magical experience. It's safe. And then there's all sorts of other types of medicines, plant medicine work that are done with groups of men. And I prefer, I prefer men's work. Yeah. Because when you're in the plant medicine, it's too easy to get confused between the feminine and the, and the male. So I I, I I really like just keeping it super clear that we're here to work on us, you know. And there's no one in the in the in, in the environment we have to look impeccable for. You just need to be focusing on who you are. Mm. So men's work for me. There's lots of retreats where people take you through a process. And there's a lot of shadow work where you get to address. The parts of yourself that are really dark that you never talk about, but are like the A scale, a lot of that comes up where you can look at childhood abuse. Like a lot of the veterans work that we do, it's surprising when we do medicine work, how often childhood traumatic experiences are what are coming up for them, even more so than combat. They can't resolve a a lot of those kinds of
0: things. Did you have a lot of fear when you were going into like ayahuasca? For those of the listeners, the plant medicine you're referring to, you've you've done a few, but ayahuasca is kind of what you're, did you? Yeah. The reason I ask is because this is kind of like a personal question that I may as well ask because I think people will be curious. There's still fear in me when I, when I sat with ayahuasca, I don't know if I fully, like I went and I had major experience, but there was still a fear of like completely, you know, taking that extra cup and just completely going. And and this, even with mushrooms, right? There's this fucking fear in me that is like, I know that once you get into that world, it all goes away, but it's like that in-between stage, that fear, even like doing vision quests, I'm like, I know the outcome. I listened to your story and I'm like, in the book, I'm like, man, I've been thinking about doing this, but it's like this This fear that I think most people can probably relate to is like that. You know, first of all, for you, what is that fear? Like, how does that show up? And how did you, did that show up in the space? And how did you deal with it? Because this is what most people are struggling with that I hear. I was terrified, man. I was
1: fucking (laughs) terrified about losing control because there is a supreme intelligence outside of our conscious awareness that is. (laughs) Present And it's real. And once you get it, once you get a sense of this, the beauty of it and the non-judgment of it, and just this loving, infinite sense of pure awareness, I I couldn't surrender to it. I did 19 ayahuasca journeys. Okay. And, and here's the funny thing is I was, I just soldiered through them because typically you're supposed to purge, which is part of the spiritual experience is just purging and getting rid of, you know, ejecting bad things from your system, you know, psychologically, somatically, physically, you know, spiritually. But I wasn't going to be controlled. I couldn't release control to something I didn't understand. I wasn't going to do it. I got a lot of transformation out of it because like I said, I saw my suffering. I was able to find myself in a place where I wasn't that. So I got all that. But then I realized about my 18th retreat, I'm like, I need to purge. That's my problem. I'm just too much of a control freak. You know? And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do this one last, I'm going to go do another ceremony, but, and I'm going to purge. So I go there with this big intention, like I'm going to purge. And I sit out in the courtyard away from everybody else with my finger down my throat for about an hour and a half, trying to vomit, trying to throw up. Please, I'm here to surrender. Right? I mean, and, and then... What happened was i didn't it didn't happen, but then I got this really deep gurgle in my stomach, oh, yeah, and then my digestive tract just started churning, and I ran to the bathroom and I had such like a it was such a, a forceful experience man of purging out the other end that it literally pulled everything out of my pores. I was there for like forty five minutes, just just. I came out like a, I came out of it like a shiny new penny, right? There is just like this. It purged a different way, and it's exactly what I needed. And then that, and then I, ayahuasca is always called grandmother medicine. It's also called grandmother. And so, grandmother and I had an agreement that I didn't need to come back. I was good. I didn't need any more ayahuasca journeys. And I was so profound—a a clear agreement—that that's what I needed. I needed to surrender the need for control and just let it go. And for me, that was a, a cathartic experience where I could physically feel like somebody vomiting, throwing up as part of the ceremony. I could feel that I, that's exactly what I needed. I needed to get rid of all these holograms of trauma that were all just messed up and blocking me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That experience with ayahuasca, it's just each night is different too. It's like yeah, uh, for those of you listening, like it's you think this is the this is the beautiful thing about it is like this is the you got to release control, right? And what I found my lesson was like, oh, I had one night I thought I could predict the next. And, or oh yeah well the next like I have this predictability and she's like no 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 that's not how it works you can't predict you think you know okay well I'm gonna show you something and you're like okay okay I get it I surrender it's like it's like as soon as even in the even in the space like when you're in it you're you're like you start to get cocky and then she'll humble you. And then sometimes you get a little scared. She's like, just surrender. And then you're like, okay. It's like this constant humble effect. And you're like, okay, I get it. I get it. Okay. I understand. <laughs> it's like lesson after lesson after lesson. And then you take it in real life and you're like, oh shit. I, get, I This is what this means. This isn't just sitting here and 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 drinking medicine. This is life. This is life yeah. that I'm learning about. Because then it, you just walk into real life. You're like, oh shit, I get it now. I get what that meant in the medicine space in real life, right? right? And it's tough. <laughs> it,
1: it was for, for me, you know. Even though I didn't purge, I thought I was soldiering through it, and I wore it like okay, you yeah. know. Now nah, I've never purged, right? But but what I was doing each time is that first journey. I found my joy, right? Oh, yeah. Like one of those little Russian dolls. I kept finding that there's a crusty little center underneath each time I popped open this transformation. And then I found that I really had a concept that my joy is in that little tiny pod at the very beginning, but it's being guarded by this magma. Like, why would magma be guarding my joy? And this is the kind of shit that was going on in my head, right? And But it was able to just transcend all that to where I could find this place where there was an absence of suffering. It was like, we were soul retrieval for me. It was so refreshing that I found my joy. And then each time I did my journey, I went right back and I expanded this place of of joy, you know? And had I not found that, I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't be, I just, just like, there's so much chronic dissatisfaction on every level in my life. Nothing was good enough. No one was good enough. And I was just, I just, I, it was just so internally dissatisfied with myself If I, you know, I just needed to work all that stuff through, and when that, when that all kind of just smoothed out, and all that stuff went away, my negative self talk diminished dramatically. I was able to start focusing more, more realistically on like who am I really becoming, Mm -hmm. and and finding my joy was was really profound. It, it, I mean, that that more than anything was the reason why I wrote and published the book. Because there is so much more on the other side of our suffering,
0: joy. So, joy. What is, what is joy? What is that word mean? It means fulfillment to you. Like, what is? Because it's self love. It, it's yeah. self love. Yeah. Joy is is like I, I
1: really, really am. I just I I, I love my ability to help others. I love who I am being in the world. I've been through a lot and I constantly have to play, you know, maintenance. So I don't go into my thinking mind. But when you experience a sense of joy, things happen in your life. Like that law of reciprocity, you know, joy asks nothing in return, you know, and the more I spend time in a place where I like myself, I'm not my history. I have a lot of experiences, okay? They serve me every day, but they don't master me, you know? I find that the, the most wonderful people come into my life, and the ones who aren't so wonderful, I, I have exercise. We talked about this word discernment, discernment, you know? I'm not mean to people, but if I find that something's not serving me, it's not really good for me, then I just move nicely away from it you know, and I just focus on who I'm becoming and the people I want to surround myself with. And uh, which is probably the what I would say to in closing that you know, Jim Rohn, who was Tony Robbins' first mentor, you know, I was listening to one of his books called Take Charge of Your Life and a couple of others. And he said two things to me that 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 to me, right? I'm listening to this audiobook, but he's speaking to me. Yeah. I had to pull over and I had to memorize. Like this one quote, he said, you, you must carefully examine the credentials of those who wish to enter the place in your mind where your thoughts are formed. Oh, and I had to think about that. You must carefully examine the credentials of those who wish to enter the place in your mind where your thoughts are formed. And up until that point, I was just so heavily influenced by people in general and people who weren't the healthiest, who didn't have my best interest. They were working on their own shit. And they were trying to enroll me into theirs. And so I just started really paying attention. And then the second thing that I, I memorized from Jim Rohn's work was the three types of association. Number one, disassociation. If somebody's, if people are toxic, you got to get them out of your life. But number two, limited association. What happens if they're family and you got to see them at Christmas? Well, then limit your association. And if they don't get it, tell them, you're not going where I want to go. I feel we talk or you're, you're. If you ever want to kind of focus on something different, then I'll talk to you more. But for right now, I got to limit my association with you and be responsible for you and be willing to say that to somebody if they are persistent. Why aren't you calling me back? Mm. Okay. And then the third type of association is expanded association. Go find people that have the attributes, the qualities in their life that you would want to have and what you would want to further develop and take them to lunch and talk to them about what you see in them. Because the reason why you recognize those qualities in them is because you t- deep down recognize them inside yourself. You just haven't cultivated them yet. So just with those two pieces of information, I was able to transform and, and change the trajectory of my life, okay, just by the people I was hanging out with. So these are, these are nuggets. They aren't my nuggets. I'm really big about giving credit where I learn from and who I learned them from and pointing people in the direction yeah. Like in my book, most of the chapters are about, go read this book, go listen to this yeah. book, right? Go go to this experience, you know? I, I have a synthesis, that's my writing, but I really enjoy writing about great thought leaders that have impacted my life.
0: That's what I like about you, man. You're very humble. You have a lot of wisdom. You may not give yourself as much credit for because you, you know, <laughs> very humble. And dude, I'm just so glad that we, you know, connected and you know the conversations we've had and and this was just so powerful your book is amazing and i truly you guys listening like i recommend you grabbing this book because it is such a fucking awesome journey and there's so many nuggets in there and it's just real raw honest and dude thank you dude, thank you so much for coming on man because when people hear you and you talk and just you know how humble and real you are. It's it's like people, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna love this book. And I'm sure they really enjoyed this episode. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us.
1: Man, I tell you, Lance, it's been great. Especially the fact that you you took the time to really listen and digest this work before we actually have a conversation. We had lots of conversations, but it's difficult to understand the nature of this work until you've actually experienced it. And then it's made a it's made this this conversation different different than an interview. This has been a real conversation where there's been back and forth, and I I'm really excited about like who you're becoming and like and how this work may be impacting you.
0: I appreciate it, and you know, like I said, like we'd said earlier, you know, people come into your lives for a reason, and yeah, I'm definitely learning a lot already. You know, there there's so many things, and yeah. I'm I'm excited for people to grab this book and before we, we sign off, maybe give them a little bit of what you're working on, where we can find you. And obviously, you know, be the dawn and the darkness, the relentless pursuit of becoming who we are meant to be. You can find that all on Audible, Amazon, where else? Yeah, harvestingwisdom.com. dot com. Right. I bought that domain
1: back in the when the internet first was born and I didn't know what I was going to do with it but I thought it'd be something great. So harvestingwisdom.com you can get a sense of my first book, first audiobook called Transitioning Veterans, how we get in our own way and what to do about it. And you can listen to that one if you're a veteran or just want to listen to that one. Go to transitioningveteransbook.com. And then under the audiobook preview you can listen to the whole hour and 20 minute audiobook for
0: Transitioning vets. Yeah. Which is super important. Like, what are you doing? And yeah, man, what about? So you're on LinkedIn as well. LinkedIn. Yeah. JH Parker. Cool. And I'm not
1: a big social media guy, but I know it's necessary. So I'm just kind of getting into spreading the word. But my, my hope is that just g- good people are going to read and listen to this and they're going to refer it to others. And I'm not looking to do consulting. I don't need to do speaking engagements. I'm not. I don't want to do a lot of coaching and consulting. It's not really where my head's at. I'm, I'm
0: really focusing on writing transformational work from here on out. Awesome. All right, man. Thank you so much, everybody. Make sure to grab a copy. And again, thank you so much, John. This was awesome. All right. See you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did such a powerful conversation. John has so much value and insight into so many different layers. And that's why we connect so well is because, you know, although our journey has been different, it's similar in a lot of ways. And I can really resonate with him and just enjoy having conversations with him. And as you guys can see, you know, we, that was a, that was a real genuine conversation about the things that are just so important i believe in the the landscape that we're living in now and it's so important to have these conversations so i hope you guys took away some golden nuggets and got some notes and make sure you go grab the book be the dawn in the darkness the relentless pursuit of becoming who we are meant to be think about that title today and think about what your takeaways were from this episode and apply them in your life If you guys aren't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure to do so wherever you're listening. We're also available on YouTube and all the information to John and his book. He goes by J H Parker is all below in the show notes. And I highly recommend grabbing this and I listened to it on audio. It was great and I really, really enjoyed it. So much love everybody. Stay safe. Be strong. We'll catch you next time.